everybody. Welcome to episode 15 of Drop the Needle in the Haystack, a podcast where we use the Forgotify website to take a listen to tracks on Spotify that have, until this point, never been played. Uh, and as always, I'm Robbie, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Eric and Matt. Hey, everyone. Hello, everyone. Happy holiday season. Our Christmas episode was last week, but there's still more weeks before Christmas. It's it's the anticipation that counts, you know? It's, right. I'm always in the spirit. How about you, Robbie? Uh, yeah, I'm always down to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I just, I don't know how we messed up the, um, the counting, you know? It's, it's not like it's hard to look at the calendar and go, hey, next week's not Christmas Eve. I think maybe we should wait to do our Christmas. You know? I think it was my fault because I think I said if we wait, then it will come out like on Christmas and nobody's going to listen to it on Christmas. That's a good. All right. And you know, we were reeling because we thought our best friend forgot if I had died. So we weren't really in a good headspace to like count or look at calendars. I guess that's true. But it's all better now. Forgot if I was behaving very well for me. I only had to like refresh the page maybe like 10 times out of 40 song searches. So not bad. Yeah, it was it was pretty it's gotten better, I think, since the um its demise and rebirth. Uh, but, uh, we're in the Forgotify Ascended arc now. Forgotify <laughs> Phoenix. Not very topical to the holiday, Robbie. Phoenix? Anyway. Well, uh, um uh, so yeah, the Jesus Christ comparison's right there. Ah <laughs> Robbie, you really you really missed the boat on that one. I yeah, did, I made ball. that joke before. Fuck. Eric, leave that in. Don't cut me out. <laughs> It was an adjective, so, you know, I think you're in the clear here. I edit the podcast, and then Eric goes through and re-edits it, taking out parts he doesn't like, and censoring things as he sees fit. I just I just feel like sometimes, Robbie, you want our audience to be a group of people that it's not. Too hot for TV. Yeah, yeah so any, TV. any really inappropriate, like, opinions you have, Robbie, go ahead and say them right now, but we'll edit them out. Anything you need to get off your chest. I'm not going to do that. I'm not falling for this one. <laughs> Let's hear your most controversial hot give take your, right now, Rob. My most yeah. controversial hot take? Yeah. Uh, I think that Christmas is nice. Well, that's getting edited out. That's but I'm leaving this part in. I can't believe you said that, Robbie. That is the most horrendous thing I've ever heard in my life. Oh, I mean, my I God. I just think it's so weird that you stream without pants on. I mean, do you really do that? Listen, they can't see me from the waist down, so why bother? Well, you do wear a robe, you know, so I guess... Right, uh... constantly. Yeah, the viewers, the viewers can't see Rod right now. I got a hot take. Um, maybe not that much of a hot take. I don't. I don't like avocados. Mm. I can't believe you've done this. Don't like them. Oh, jeez. They're just kind of like slimy and weird to me. I don't know. You don't like avocado toast? No. Can you even call yourself a millennial? I don't know. Am I going to get like my card revoked or something? Yeah. So, avocado toast. What exactly? How do you? How do you? Do oh, it? how do you make avocado toast? Here, yes. I'll explain it to you. All right. Uh, so you take a piece of bread, preferably gotcha, thickly gotcha. cut. Got it. Um, if you don't have a toaster, you can lay it in a pan. You want to heat it up so it's nice and um, toasted. Then heat the pan. You take the an pan avocado. Toasts. No, I mean you just want crispy toast, right? Crispy you know, toast. You need, okay. It needs it needs to be able to support the weight of about half an avocado. Now there's two ways to do it at that point. Okay. You can take half the avocado and you can start slicing it up. You know, um, 
I guess it would be horizontally. I, it doesn't really matter. Slice it up whatever way you want. Mm-hmm. You want avocado slices. Mm-hmm. You can place those slices over the whole of the toast. Yeah. And then that could be considered some kind of avocado toast. Some people prefer to mash their avocado. Right, right, right. And you can spread it over kind of like a guacamole without any of the other stuff that makes guacamole guacamole. So it's just mashed avocado. And at that point, you can take some olive oil, you know, Unfiltered put a little bit of that olive. on top, you know, mm-hmm. extra virgin olive oil just right, on top right. of the avocado, uh-huh. a little red pepper flake. Right, of course. There, that's a pretty nice avocado toast uh-huh. right there. You can yeah. take an egg, uh, sunny side up perhaps, or over easy, put that on top of either avocado toast. Some people put some right. maybe uh, thinly grated parmesan cheese right this is getting thinly grated there's something thinly grating about this conversation there, there's so much you could do with avocado toast it's just it's such a thing robbie it's mm. such a during the course of art this... form some people take radish you know nice thinly sliced radish and they put it on their avocado toast look uh, the sky is the limit with avocado toast uh during the course of this conversation i have accumulated thirty thousand dollars in uh student loan debt and also been denied a mortgage well then you are the perfect candidate for avocado toast i don't know why i said candidate sounds good first one eric first one all right yeah i guess i'm going first so I'm going to cut all that out. It was a bad bit. No, no, anyway, leave that in. It was okay. Leave it in and double it. But I, I, <laughs> I, I do mean it. I don't like avocado. I don't know. There's no accounting for taste, I guess. All right. So this week, we've got a pretty cool track. I don't know if you guys remember, but a few weeks ago, probably like five or six, actually, was a while we ago. had um, the Sea Shanties, right? Right. And... That's that was one of my favorite songs that I've discovered on Forgotify because it's it's truly like I think it's like the spirit of this podcast, right? Like totally forgotten music. It's like totally forgotten music that someone brought back and then was forgotten again and then we discovered it. So it's cool, right? Very meta. Well, yeah, very meta. So here we go again. We got some folk music for you. This is called Teton Tea Party with Charlie Brown. Let me read a little bit about it and then we'll hear one of the tracks. During Charlie Brown's, a.k.a. Charles Artman's, travels, he befriended mountain climbers in the Tetons of Wyoming. The Teton Tea Parties were initially led by Billy Briggs in the Jackson Hole area, which is up by the Grand Tetons, later led by Charlie in Berkeley, and consisted of all night folk music playing events for climbers and musicians that would later reach mythical status as a sort of mountaineering woodstock. This album, recorded in 1966, features anecdotes about and inspirations from his travels. The songs are accompanied with dulcimer, banjo, and even musical saw. So that's just a little bit from, I believe, the the Smithsonian. That's really all I could find on it, but it's uh, super cool. Why don't we hear a little bit of the track, 39 Miles from the Ohio Line. I'm 29 miles from the Ohio line My ankles are festered and sore A short man's step was all I could take Because of the chains that I wore God said, love your brothers Oh Lord, what could I do? All right, yeah, so there's a little bit of it. We, um... Yeah, I mean, you tell right away. It's it's certainly folky folk music, right? We got the banjo playing, we've got the um, 
nice but relatively untrained vocals, right? You know, the, the very human vocals, right? Anyone can sing. And this guy kind of embodies the spirit of that. You know, he's not afraid to put his voice out there. Uh, the lyrics talking about uh, his journeys basically to the Ohio line. I think that was 38 seconds in. So at that point, he's 29 miles from the Ohio line, but the song starts, he's 39 miles. Um, and it's sort It'd of a great time. Journey. Yeah, wonder, it's his journey to the Ohio line. Yeah, I wonder how fast he has to be going given in 38 seconds, he made it from 39 miles to 20, 28 miles. Oh, fuck, this is a math podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> That's like those questions, though. Like, if so-and-so is traveling at, like, you know, it, it, during this amount of time, they make it this far. How fast yeah. are they going? When will they intercept the train? Yeah, I remember these. Anyway, well, I like, uh, the, um, yeah, I like ahead, you, you were saying the, I, there's something, not the word untrained, but it's, it's that the vocal quality, like intentionally not, I don't, I don't want to say refined. Refined, yeah. It's very, it's like very raw. It's like a very raw yeah. style of singing. And he's going in on like a lot of qualities that typically I don't think uh, are the, I don't know, the mainstream desired vocal qualities, like a very, you know, nasal, forceful almost quality. Like there, there's something very, it's very straightforward in, in a way. I don't, I don't want to say raw. Some of, some of these words just have too much of an almost negative sounding connotation. And that's not what I want, but I don't know. Robbie, can you like, what do you think? You know, I think raw is a good word for it. it it's, uh, I think, another way you could talk about the tone. It's sort of warbly, almost. There's a lot of, sure. like, uh, combined with the banjo playing, there's a lot of sort of, like, these high nasal pitches that really have a unique sound to them. You know, the, both the sort of accompanying and the singing. The melody is, like, very strange, too. It's very chromatic. And, and like Matt mentioned earlier when we were uh, listening before the show, it's got all this sort of mixing between major and minor modes and it really makes for a very i think i'm also now re reaching for words it, it makes for a very unique effect something that's almost sounds mysterious or, or exotic in some way the combination of vocal quality and you know melody that sort of thing i feel like that was a there was like a chromatic scale degree six in there somewhere something really subtle it was really hard to detect and it just kind of sneaks up on you and then all of a sudden it's like oh that's a it's a major key because this isn't it wasn't like uh, melodic minor or anything this is very functional modal like natural minor right kind of like an aeolian sound to it right and then just kind of sneaks in maybe maybe it was like the the raised scale degree six or, or something in there but yeah i know it, it happens during that chromatic descending line after that really big leap up in a melody mm. like that was that thing you mentioned that that also struck me as being very <laughs> I don't know. It's 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 rare to see big leaps like that in in melodies, right? I think. Yeah, I think a lot of well, I guess the effect I keep coming back to this this sort of the strumming and the vocal quality and the melody. It's this very I don't know. For me, it's very like almost unearthly in some ways. Very and maybe this is just like years of horror movies being set in rural settings with the backdrop of banjo music and things like this, but. There's something about it that's just very evocative and very, like you say, a unique type of sound, and it's very um, arresting, I would say. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the horror movie thing, because one of the first things, I'm trying to place it, but this definitely conjures like an image or an association for me of like maybe a movie or something. 
the only sound that like really came back to me for this was the second Left for Dead game, which I know was set in a very different area. Uh, I think it was set it was in, in the like, South, right? Yeah, like it Louisiana, was in Louisiana. Oh yeah, I yeah. think. But it had a lot of banjo in the soundtrack, so that's probably why. I guess it's something about the you know the sparseness of it. It's very it sounds exposed and it sounds lonely in some ways, almost that's ominous, a- you know. It's a man with, yeah, and I think that kind of matches the, you know, the motif, you know, the lyrics that he's going for. It's a man traveling across the country, presumably by himself, and he's singing a song to himself on his banjo, right? You know, it's, it's the journey, I'm sure, was lonely, and the music kind of reflects that in some ways. And it's also just the fact that this is, I guess, what would we almost call this a field recording in a way? Like it, it's yeah, it's basically a field recording. It's not produced in any way. We're hearing just like raw, unfiltered sounds, so and maybe that's what's also kind of like I guess unsettling in a, in a way because we're everyone's used to hearing some kind Super of production. Processed. Yeah, yeah, that makes it more that's impressive true. though because the sound is it's this is un probably unprocessed, unproduced sound, and like the quality still being like this pristine almost, you know? Yeah, it's good stuff. It's good stuff, but why don't we, uh, real quick, I want to take a listen to a piece of another track. So you may have noticed in the bio that they talk a little bit about Musical Saw making or being featured on this album. So we're going to go to another track on this album called Down in the Valley by Charlie Brown, and we're going to hear some Musical Saw. <laughs> So I don't think anyone would blame you if that initial high-pitched, almost singing quality of sound um, you may not have understood was the musical saw. So the musical saw makes it almost like human voice or another word just came to my mind, theremin kind of sound. Yeah. Very kind of high-pitched, wavery, but it's very, very cool, especially in this context. It's playing, you know, the duet with the harmonica. And the pitch accuracy was very striking. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the saw is not typically something we uh, think of in a musical context. And it is always sort of surprising to get such specific kind of musical qualities out of something that, you know, is just has a different, very different purpose. And, you, you know, you can make percussion instruments out of anything. But when you start to try to get pitches out of everyday objects, it can be really thorny to get you know, any kind of specificity or specificity with them. And this was like very much, I, I, when I first started, I thought it was like some, someone just warbling back there. It, it, and I guess this is maybe, maybe we just are scared of this music or maybe I'm scared of this music because there's something <laughs> haunting about it. That's, it's like, it's almost like the uncanny valley for sound where it's so much, it's so similar to a human voice, but it's not quite a human voice that it, it's, it's almost eerie. I agree. I agree. Because you said that earlier, and that was my first impression, too, was just how unsettling it was to hear the saw so closely resembling a human voice. Because it sounds like, you know, very kind of wide vibrato, but it doesn't sound unnatural. That's the thing about right, it. Yeah, yeah. Like the the pattern and frequency of the vibrato, it actually sounds pretty natural. 
And I, I don't know anything about the mechanics of musical saw playing. Is it bowed? Are they bowing a saw? Yeah, I was just I just looked it up. So they're um, basically the guy I saw playing it. He puts one end between his legs and bends the saw in various directions or to various amounts and then is bowing. And I think the pitch variation uh, depends on how much the saw is bent. So I wonder how much of that vibrato is literally natural like you know there's probably tension shaking the saw at all times especially if it's being bowed i feel like it the bendy saw has to have vibrato just it it can't be done without that kind of vibrato right yeah i I don't think so i think it'd be very hard it's probably in the physics of playing the instrument and i think that's i was also thinking of theremin because that's probably the closest thing that we can draw a comparison to but can you describe the theremin theremin for those who don't know matt Oh yeah, theremin, it's like a very modern instrument, very, you know, sci-fi futuristic. It is two rods that use electromagnetic waves, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. To um, create sound. And like the trick with this instrument and why it's so hard and why it's so cool and why it's so sci-fi is like you don't touch it. You, You create the sound by not touching the instrument. You have to basically move both of your hands uh, at different proximities to the two sounding rods, and one sound control one hand controls the pitch, and one hand controls the volume. So with your right hand, usually I think you're controlling literally how high and low the notes go, and with your left hand, you're you're creating volume envelopes, and it's it's a ridiculously hard and abstract instrument to play. With the theremin, the I find the vibrato sounds usually pretty bad. I think it's pretty hard to get a convincing theremin vibrato. And most of the time, maybe just because I always see the theremin and I'm not only hearing it, but I, I know it's a theremin and, and that it's not a human. Yeah, that's true. Theremin's, <laughs> granted, one of the hardest, probably the hardest instrument to play because there's no tactile feedback. And that goes into the vibrato too. But yeah, I with saw, the saw. Yeah, like yeah. I saw somebody uh, come in and do a concert and like a lecture on theremin at my old university, actually. And he's he's like one of the like best theremin players, apparently. Okay. But he's he he did note that like theremin vibrato or not vibrato, be, like being a virtuoso on a theremin is not nearly as impressive as being like a virtuoso on any other instrument, because like the easy things are hard. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, being a violin virtuoso is ridiculous, but like being a, probably being an oboe virtuoso, you're not chasing as many notes as a violinist is. Sure. Yeah, I mean, just yeah. the, the difficulty of getting two pitches to be in tune one after the other when you have to sort of gaze it, ga- gauge it just by looking at the physical distances. I think he, he said they do it by hand position, like they create positions that their hands can memorize to create oh, like different... I- proximities to the, the the sounding rod but i imagine the sense. saw must be an equally abstract instrument to play yeah it, it's amazing i can i can imagine a scenario in which you discover oh that a saw can make a cool sound you know like messing around with your friends you know running your bow along things playing whatever. saw games as all kids <laughs> yeah. do but i'm having a hard time imagining or i think i'm having a difficult time difficult time imagining a world where that is explored more and you actually get it to the point where it's amazing sounding you know like where this can actually fit in a in a musical style such as 
down in the valley with Charlie Brown and the Teton party. Like, you know, like just developing the technique that much so that you can actually use it for something. Right. I wonder if like certain saws are better too. You know, like we have, you know, instrument makers. It's like, oh yeah, the the buffet sounds much better than like the Howarth. If it's like, oh, you really want to go with like Black and Decker for a good quality (laughs) musical (laughs) saw. Imagine going to like uh going to Home Depot. It's like hi hi, how can I help you today? Yeah, I, I've just got this uh my my bow here, and I just kind of want to try a few of your stars. Is, is that cool? Right. Do you here have any tune to D saws and D? I'm on I'm on Amazon right now. Baco two ninety six Stradivarius musical saw. 80 no bucks. way. Yep. They've got a Stradivarius saw. Uh, they've named it a Stradivarius, oh. and then they've also. Yeah, but it, what's funny, I think the funniest thing about this is that it's just mixed in with all the rest of the saws. So then they have like a great neck, cross-cut saw, hardwood handle, tree saw and hand saw, you know, professional cut timber saw. And then Just imagine like you're, you're a company that, that makes saws and it's like, oh yeah, we're apparently really popular with the musical saw playing community. If you go Wait. to musicalsaws.com, you can buy the finest musical saws, I guess. Well, they all say that, Eric. I feel oh, here okay. we go. Musol in Westfall is the maker of the original musical saw. Our singing saws are made of the finest steel and possess an outstanding range of over two octaves. Wow. Wow. Yeah, but like something tells me, you know, this guy wasn't playing on one of those. He was probably playing on something like old reliable from the tool shed. <laughs> oh, man. I know I mentioned this exact person, I think in the last episode. Um, but the the professor who I mentioned, uh, who like played with um that big band, and he had like that ridiculous IQ of like recognizing jazz music. Mm, sure, he got a grant to build a wrenchophone. Yes, I'm not joking. He got a grant to build a wrenchophone. I saw it. I played it. It sounds pretty cool, but it's basically a, a xylophone of wrenches. Whoa! So he had to. He told us he had to go to um home depot with like a sounding mallet and some some tuning forks because he has i think he's perfect pitch sure and he was just like in the wrench aisle setting up wrenches wrenches on like a thing an apparatus to let them reverberate and like testing their sound (laughs) and he said it was one of the weirdest things he's had to do in public ah it sounds Uh, like it i'm not saying that's not awesome but i am wondering who approves that grant Someone really wanted the wrenchophone. I don't know, but yeah, Doctor Coleman, if you're uh, if you're out there listening to our podcast, you really made an impact on me, even though I yeah, was that's... asleep in most of your classes. <laughs> the truth comes out. Yeah. Well, oh, he knew. He totally knew. Yeah, sure. He didn't care. As long as some bit gets through to the students, you got to be pretty happy, right? I did. And if I that did bit is the well. wrenchophone, you know. So okay, we... no, the other bit that okay, Doctor Coleman, if you. You're not listening, but because of his digital orchestration class, I got very good at transposing French horn parts on site because we had to digitally orchestrate uh, the Amen or the Hallelujah at the end of Matisse der Mahler, the brass chorale. So I, I had to get really good at reading French horn music. So thank you for that, Dr. Coleman. Yeah, that's there one of those go. life skills right there. Doing your taxes, learning how to drive, learning how to site transpose. French, French horn. horn music. I thought you meant you were doing your taxes and like form B is transpose this French horn line. <laughs> uh, transposing, transposing by a fifth. I don't know. It's it's like not you don't do it that often. But anyway, um, shall we move on to our next our next selection? Yeah, we should. 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You guys want to talk about Mega Man for a while? <laughs> we had a lot of fun doing that last time. I mean, we did, but... <laughs> anyway, so my selection is next. Uh, and this is the artist Jalmara Alfaro. Uh, Alfaro. Uh, you're going to have to pardon me on the pronunciation there. It's I believe the first X is meant to be pronounced kind of like somewhere between a, an SH and a J. But she was a, a Cuban singer. You know, one of the many famous Cuban singers that came out of that very fertile musical uh, scene and very fertile musical culture. Uh, she was a soprano. She became famous for singing uh, a style of music that's called a bolero, uh, which is a specific type of, well, we'll get into the specifics of the bolero because it's sort of an interesting story I found when I did the research. But why don't we start listening to some of her singing? This is Luna Rosa, and it's off a compilation of uh, a lot of her uh, most famous tracks. Let's listen. Luna Rosa, Here she was a coloratura soprano, so very high voice, very kind of delicate vocal fuck is usually how it's talked about. And we're going to take a listen now to the very end of the piece where she sort of displays a little more of her range and her control over her voice. As you can hear there, extremely, extremely high, even for a voice that is, you know, at the top end of our normal range of human voices. And I gotta say, just to gush a little bit about what I like so much about this music, because there's a lot of really phenomenal Cuban musicians and Afro-Cuban musicians that sort of came out in the, or were contemporaries of hers in the 40s and 50s, and it's sort of a shame that a lot of this music uh, isn't quite as well known because I didn't know about, you know, Jamara and I would really, just from what I've heard so far of this track and some others, I would put her musical, her musicality and her phrasing up there with someone like Frank Sinatra. It's really, really compelling, really kind of intelligently phrased and crafted musical lines. And as you can hear, a really phenomenal voice. There's something I really like about the quality of her voice and about all those, you know, stu stupendous high notes. Because that, that's not easy to do. That's very, very difficult. Yeah, Robbie, do you have perfect pitch? I don't, no. Oh, but does anyone know what that pitch was? Like, at the end, during her, like, little, her little uh, cadenza? I don't know. I'm sorry, I don't have perfect pitch either. I think maybe a B-flat. She she touched a B-flat during, like, that turn. Up right, there. like the the very highest one. Because it's, it's something very extremely I could, high. I can believe that. But, oh, um, dang it. It's the clarity of the tone that's like the most unbelievable. Like I made this joke earlier, but like Ariana Grande's got nothing on this. That that the control and the clarity of the tone and like the intonation, it's it's ridiculous. It's almost it's very athletic. That's the thing. Oh, it's it's incredibly virtuosic. It's it's really incredible. The pitch accuracy between those intervals and the top range is is crazy. Crazy. And she's just jumping between them so fast. It's like you can almost imagine like she's just 
it's very graceful too. Like she just kind of touches these high notes as like embellishment and like ornamentation. It it sounds effortless. It sounds really easy. It doesn't sound clumsy at all. It's it's incredible. Yeah, I think that's part of what's so impressive to me about her her musicality too is that it's also integrated, like you say, natural, very effortless. That she has this stupendous vocal range that she's very easily able to kind of you know use at her at her disposal right sometimes you get very technically challenging pieces of music or you come in any instrument you come to a very challenging part technically and one of the difficulties is making it sound musical and not just sort of getting this what do i physically need to do to make these sounds happen right you kind of got to you got to integrate it into a musical kind of style which i think is done here very well because that's like the mark of of someone who's someone who's really good and someone who's very comfortable with their instrument, right? And let's let's call the voice an instrument because it is, um, especially in this context. But I mean, for someone to be really impressive, it has to seem easy and effortless. Like it's not hard at all, right? We've all, I'm sure, all of us as musicians has experienced like, oh, that doesn't sound too hard, and then we get the sheet music and we try it, and it's like, wow, this is <laughs> yeah. really hard. Yeah. But with singers, I'm sure with song, that's even more prevalent and more common because singers they have to really sell how easy it is i mean when we think of the great um songs great vocal performances you know big arias if you try it just like a layman you know it's it's hard it's ridiculously hard and yeah, no they're making it sound easy like i think i think the big one the first time i ever heard one of these for like music i was in like high school and now it's become very like I don't, I don't know, not a big deal, but the Queen of the Night aria, the Mozart Queen of the Night aria, sure. right, right. for the famous high pitches, but also the athleticism of hitting those those um, arpeggios, right? Because it's got that right. big arpeggiating figure. And, like the entire thing is, is really hard, but that's like the, the part, right? Yep. And like the, the key is we, we, we watched several performances of it and the key was like, how easy do they make it sound? Yeah. Have you, you guys wanna, noticed you that? You want to listen to that? To the person that makes it sound the easiest. Yeah. But have you guys noticed, actually, that song has been, like, weirdly in pop media lately? Has it? I feel like I've... some examples? I feel like I've heard it in, like, four commercials this past year. Oh, okay, commercials. Gotcha. I think... Yeah, I can't think of any examples, but I know what you mean. I think, you know, there's something just really striking about that very high, very fast melody. It's always the same part, that da 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 but my mom, there was a commercial over the summer that was like really dumb where they're at the opera and someone is singing that and then someone slides in on like a lawn chair and then it changes to something very different. But my mom was like, oh, this is such a stupid commercial. I hate that lady singing. And then I just heard it on like a Christmas commercial the other day for some reason. It's okay. weird. It's like the people making the commercials are like, we need something that's classical snooty music. Uh, let's get that thing. The, the one with all the obnoxious high notes. And now it's I mean Mozart. That's exactly what it is, though, right? You know, because it's not like people know they they need something that people will recognize, right? Immediate association. Yeah, and the but more anyway, it gets played, the more people recognize it as that thing. It's, it's a self fulfilling prophecy. It's your. It's in the cultural consciousness now, guys. Cultural consciousness. There right? we go. The gestalt, the world a mind. Associated meaning. Right. Well, to kind of wrap up our discussion here, I did want to touch briefly on just all the different or the importance of these Afro-Cuban musical styles, because especially if you're a jazz musician, right, you owe a lot to 
or a lot of the great music we, we've uh, kind of gotten a chance to hear, especially in the latter half of the 20th century, has a lot of influence from these Afro-Cuban rhythms. So you think of people like Dizzy Gillespie, of course, and then Herbie Hancock has done a lot of really cool stuff, and all sorts of people have. And it's made our way, made its way kind of into the, the idiom. But the music has a lot of specific uh, sort of descriptors about it, specific ways they organize it. And I don't want to get too much into it because I'm very quickly going to start talking out of my depth and being inaccurate, right? From what I can gather, uh, the type of song that she was most associated with was the bolero. And that's as distinct from the Spanish bolero, which is where, you know, Ravel took his inspiration for his that piece. This is the Cuban bolero, which is the only similarity is the name. Apparently, they have nothing to do with one another. And it's kind of uh, related to, as a lot of the music is, uh, dance, especially. I think it's, it's usually in 2-4, and I think it, it tends to be slower. Maybe not a good example of this particular one, but it also features, of course, a lot of the elements like, you know, the clave rhythm, guajero, which is sort of that repe repeated arpeggiated figure you hear a lot in the piano or in the chordophone instruments. I just wanted to briefly mention that without getting too much into it, because it's, it's like I say, there's a lot here, and I don't want to start talking more than I actually know about, but it's really interesting and really compelling. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I almost thought I because again, I'm even more probably ignorant than you are about this stuff, Rob, because you're actually a jazz musician. But I I, I did wonder like what is this? I don't know. I don't want to say template, but it's like the dance, the Latin jazz dance uh, styles have very distinctive markers about them, which make them really cool to me. Right. Yeah. I can't. I don't know exactly what this one is. I want to say based on what I, I my limited research that this is not a bolero because that seems like it's described as a slower dance. But yeah, there's like, you know, the son mutano, the, the chengue. There's all this sort of really specific stuff and really specific words for accompanying patterns. Of course, you've got the clave rhythm, the three, two and the two, three. And I think what's also in, this is kind of a tangent now, but I think what's also interesting about this whole dialect of music, it really highlights, I think, how limiting our Western music notation can be in some ways. I think maybe for things like rhythms, our music, our, our normal way of writing music, it's not bad. It can do it, of course, but it's not as intuitive, maybe, as it is for something like harmony. Because if you kind of read about how the Cuban musicians talk about the clave rhythm, they talk about it 3-2 or 2-3, right? The first part of the rhythm, it's either the one that's got three clicks uh, is first, and then there's the part that has two clicks is next, or the two click is first, and the three click is next. And when you talk about it that way, all the rhythms are much more easier to understand than having to read them off of sheet music. You know what I mean? Sure. Robbie, can you do the clave rhythm real quick for our listeners at home, for those who... Cla clavin out here. Let me find... Or just, uh... or just hit your mic as hard as you can. I feel like right. I would do it. Right. Of course. Right. That's two, three. So we would write that out in our music, or at least the one I'm looking at now is rest, beat two, beat three, rest, dotted quarter, eighth note, rest, quarter note. And then gotcha. uh, the other version is uh, the three, two, kind of flipping it. Oh, okay. And so they I talk think that's about... the one most of us are familiar with. Like right. More they're... familiar with. They're I thought both... of the two, three first. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's the one I, I, I know the most, too. But from what I understand, they're sort of 
or well it actually does have to do with what song it is or what the form is that they talk about what clave rhythm you're using there but they kind of think of it you're either starting on the two side or the three side and then you can kind of even alter it a little further and that gets way beyond what i understand but all these sort of very specific rhythmic elements they discuss that are it's not and i don't want to say it's like impossible to read on sheet music but i, I or even like super difficult but i'm saying like i i'm looking at these rhythms and i'm looking at all these tied notes and when everything's an offbeat it becomes so hard to parse everything's tied to one another but when you kind of think of it coming from these i don't know these rhythmic patterns first it, it's much more natural i guess is is really what struck me i feel like we've talked about that on the show though just how unintuitive pop rhythms are once you transcribe them onto sheet music right it's, yeah it's awful similar deal for sure yeah but i think that's about all i have to say for this particular selection so is this matt is this yours next yeah yeah no that was really cool i'd only actually known of bolero as the Ravel bolero i did not know that it was a uh dance form yeah me neither i i thought they were from the same thing but it looks like they're kind of two separate i mean we should have known that Ravel couldn't have come up with something that cool and groovy by himself right (laughs) i'm sure groovy is the word i'd use (laughs) that's right eric i forgot eric hates the bolero by Ravel. yeah i'm not i'm not a big fan of bolero you know but it's like one of those pieces that can only happen once so thank god for that right (laughs) no one can do another no one can do another bolero piece right bolero and 433 no one can ever do those again yeah what is there like a big clarinet thing in bolero uh big e flat clarinet uh solo that's on pretty much every so that's why you hate it oh yeah no no that's not why that's not why it's just uh not a but doesn't anyway (laughs) but anyway okay so yeah here is my selection for this week so I found something that I, I just really genuinely like this one a lot. The song is called Always uh, by the artist Josh Funk, and it's from the album The Face You Should Show Your Enemy, or Enemies, I think. And uh, just a little bit of context about this one. It's from 2007. Uh, I think Mr. Mister Funk, if I may call him that. Uh, I think Josh Funk has been pretty active musically and uh, also just in the arts in general. I see that he's got a YouTube channel, although the last upload was two years ago, and that he's kind of moved into a film world. But if you do go to his YouTube channel, you can see him performing some of these songs live. And I just want to read a little bit off the Tower Records website. I guess they're the ones who published this album about uh, Josh Funk. So it says, his sometimes satirical and unashamedly heartfelt lyrics draw the picture of who he is and where he is going. Hailing from Chico, California, Josh Funk started writing songs as soon as he figured out his first three chords and by the age of 15 was already winning city songwriting competitions against people twice his age. And that's what I really hope that we can all take away from this is I was struck immediately by the songwriting and the songwritery aspect of this. But let's just take a listen, and I'm going to start at 45 second mark for Always by Josh Funk. Hiding wounds you cannot hide, she'll hurt you always. Until you cannot even run anymore. You saved me, oh thank you.
yeah, that was like kind of the middle, and I think we all really liked the introduction when we took the pre-show listen. So I'm just gonna play like a few seconds of the introduction because it just sets up a really nice sound world. Yeah, I think we all really liked that. Um, I think it sounds like a 12-string acoustic guitar, kind of doing that strumming pattern. I might be wrong there if either of you guys know, but that I think that bright tinniness that we're hearing from the that strummed guitar part, maybe it's a 12-string acoustic. I don't know, but I really immediately liked this, this song when I heard it, just kind of that nice open harmony at the beginning and, and like layering of these, these sounds onto it. And I think it just really sounds like 2007, hitting the, hitting the nail right on the head. But uh, what do you fellas think? Ah, oh, fuck, getting right into high school about then. Oh, so many feelings and emotions. Oh, Completely boy. unwarranted. Nothing to I, be sad about. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, but no, I, I agree. I really like, you know, there's a few things that I hear about this that I think really set it apart for me. The first is that that uh, guitar part. I'm not sure about if it's 12-string or not, but I, I could believe that. The, the quality of the sound, that tinniness, is, I think sort of a, as an interesting element to kind of the usual syncopated rhythm guitar sort of part there. And what I really latched onto this time around, especially in our first selection, is the bass. I don't know I don't know how he produced the bass this way, but it sounds very good. It sounds very enveloping, very warm, very very present without being overpowering. And, and I think that really does a lot for me to kind of cement this whole mix together. The that's a great point about the bass, actually. It, yeah, it is very warm sounds, and enveloping. Yeah, it sounds it, great. It wraps everything up really, really nicely. Yeah, it, this took me straight back. I've been trying to find it, and I just can't, which is a shame. It took me straight back to circa like 2008, 2009, getting into high school with this Pandora playlist, you know, back uh-huh. before Spotify. Pandora. And, yeah, Pandora, right? I had this playlist. And this reminds me so much of one of the artists that would randomly, you know, because you can't pick on Pandora, right? It was radio. Mm. Yeah, it would constantly get, you know, uh, shoved in my face on Pandora. And for the life of me, I can't remember who it was, what the artist was, but uh, such a similar sound. And it took me right back, walking to high school every morning, listening to these tracks. Man, it's great, though. He's a great singer-songwriter. I can easily see why he won competitions and... He has been pretty prolific, you know, he's, he's been doing this a while. Yeah, I think there's he's got four albums on Spotify, and I, I really want to dig into his stuff more because, uh, yeah, recently I've been going back to, I actually have this really dumb playlist that I made. Um, I, I call it, I think I need to like kind of spell the title out just to fully inform you of how obnoxious I made it. Can you see it over here? <laughs> oh, 07 XD, like the emoticon, like an XD random with like the swirlies next Matt, to it you gotta make all your playlist public <laughs> yeah this one's really good just to come on take a look at this I, the I, disco weezer yeah gorillas oh. yeah so i love there this out uh, this this playlist oh, because man. for me this is like middle into high school when all i was listening blow. to like mostly emo pop punk but like that was just i don't know to me that was like a real golden age of like the emo pop punk era and um oh for sure this guy's sound it reminds me so much of like kind of the used or like taking back sunday like you remember those bands yeah um i feel like taking back sunday recently got in trouble i don't know why i feel like they finally took it and they didn't know what to do with the dang day (laughs) i feel like somebody from that band recently got in trouble i don't know but um yeah no this was like my 
this was totally my cup of tea like in high school i just loved all of this kind of like mild emo pop punk i never really got into like this the super hardcore stuff but yeah there there's something very nostalgic i think about this sound and i think maybe that's why we all really like that that warm production sound that robbie was talking about it does it has a very like nice warm sound there's just a nice also songwritery quality to it like the lyrics he's very clearly enunciating and the lyrics are are clearly supposed to be kind of like you know the the more programmatic storytelling nature i like the chord choices yeah every everything about it yeah it's really nice i don't see any controversy for taking on sunday i think you're in the clear okay. oh, no, what is that um that onion-esque uh online like the hardtimes.net or something like that oh yeah, yeah, yeah. i remember things. they posted a they posted a headline one time with a picture and it was like uh skinny pete shakes up the pop punk community by dating a woman his age <laughs> and at first i thought it was real because i sometimes forget that that whatever that website is is like satire but then i was yeah. like oh this is good okay yeah it's crazy to me though that like some of the bands from that era are still active Alive. and like kicking right i think yeah well brandon yuri panic at the disco is still doing stuff right i think yeah actually he just well, I I guess not just, but in 2018 he was on he was on Broadway doing a starring in a show. Yeah, over there. And I mean, he's very much rebranded the sound of the of of like the act. But and I mean, there was that brief moment of happiness right as we were entering 2020, where My Chemical Romance did a reunion show on the West Coast. Ah, uh, yeah, like January, right? Those were that was so so wonderful, but so sad for everyone else in the world. Right. Yeah. Apparently yeah. they sold out like stupidly fast. Oh, instantly, sure, basically. Sure. As soon as it went live, it was like out. hysterically fast. Yeah, less than fifteen minutes, you know. But I think that wraps up our selection. Should we move on to our our next part of the show? Sure. Yeah. Why don't we give our recommendations from this week? Yeah, mine's kind of lame, so I'll go first. Well, it's not lame. It's just uh, it's kind of sandwich. Listen to Dvorak eight this week. Yeah. Okay. It's, I mean, it's, it's just a good symphony, right? Concert Cabal, great recording of Dvorak 8. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's one of those, like, for those people out there who aren't super into symphonic music, this is one of those pieces that's easily approachable. You know, like, pretty much no one would listen to Dvorak 8 and go, man, I don't get why people like classical music, you know? I have to be honest. I I'm just not like the biggest fan of Dvorak. I don't know. I don't know why, but I I I think I couldn't sing you a melody from Dvorak Eight if you paid me money and like threatened my family's life. Yeah, and but I, you couldn't sing one from Dvorak Nine, right? I I I I basically legally have to be able to do that because I had I majored in oboe, so yes. Yeah, exactly. So like at least there's some Dvorak you can. I can do Dvorak Nine and Slavonic dances. That's it. Those are good. Yeah, those are good ones. Yeah. I do also... like the Slavonic dances. Those are good. Did he write a piano sonata? Yeah, he did. I don't know if I've heard that. I, don't I think he I... did. All oh. right, guys. Everyone go listen to Dvorak Piano Sonata. Or is it the Greek? I know. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of Greek. Greek wrote a piano sonata, too, that is not very good. All right. Don't listen to that. That's a negative review from Robbie Head. No Greek piano oh. sonata. Oh, no. There's actually Dvorak. Did not write a piano sonata, but there are violin sonatas. My bad. 
Uh, was it a piano concerto? Or maybe I'm just thinking of the Greek. I might be just thinking of the Greek. You're thinking of the Greek. You're 100% thinking of Greek right now. The Greek concerto is good, though. You know? Oh, yeah. That's a banger. No, yeah, the the Greek's a great composer. Just the sonata, I don't think, is his strongest work. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, I'll kind of pick up the pieces of my Greek reputation here and take a trip to our Spotify wrapped for this year. I love this fucking thing that they do for it. I love it every year. It's great. Top song 2020. My top song of 2020 was The Dry Cleaner from Des Moines by Joni Mitchell off the album Mingus. So I, think I remember Eric, that. Yeah, you sent that to me. This is a great track. It's good, and I think I apparently I've listened to it more than any other song this year. It's a good one. Take a listen it to is. it. Yeah, my my Spotify Wrapped fucking like called me out. I think I just listened to like K ballads the entire year. <laughs> <laughs> and one of my friends saw it. Saw my top song. I think my top song was my name or your name because there's one there's one song of each of those titles and is it your name by ben i don't know it's either your name or my name by the korean singer ben and like apparently that was my top song and my friend saw it and knows the song and was like oof dude are are you okay (laughs) 2020 was dark it was a sad year for you this year (laughs) looks like you might need therapy (laughs) oh man spotify get on us we'll give you all sorts of ideas for your next rap but oh no i can't i can't talk about this in the episode i'll talk about it after but um what was yeah my song recommendation i actually want to i guess this is a plug but i've been listening to uh my my friend's been putting out some work recently and he's on spotify and i really i just been listening to all his stuff and you can just look him up his name is jay cron and it's j k r o n i believe it's all one word let me just type it in real quick to make sure jay cron yeah He's uh, mostly like hip hop and um, kind of like rap, and he's based out of well, I think he he studied at Berkeley, but now I think he's in California. I just really like him. It's a nice kind of like laid back hip hop vibe, so I would recommend anyone to check out Jaycron. Cool. Yeah, definitely will do that. Great. Oh yeah, yeah I gotta I do the thing. Time. Yeah. It's that time. Eric always has to remind me. Uh, well, thank you for listening, everybody, to our show. So please like and review the show rate it follow it wherever you're listening to podcasts then follow, you can follow us on twitter at drop haystack and on instagram and facebook at drop the needle in the haystack uh and yeah thanks for tuning in eric do you want to take it away i would love to take it away thanks so much for listening everyone we'll catch you next week